Well, pandemics makes for interesting times. Never imagined us being out here under a tent in October, but that's what it is. So it's all good. We're continuing our fall series entitled Transformed. How does God slowly change us uh, more and more through our lives? How does God change us to look more and more like his son, Jesus? And today being Thanksgiving, we're going to specifically key in on the gratitude and the thanks thankfulness. And how does God use thankfulness in our lives as part of that process of transformation. Uh, I encourage you to use your booklets. We put all the scriptures in there as long as some pictures. Uh, And that's where I want to start. I want to tell you about first a remarkable man named Eddie Rickenbacker, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. He was America's number one fighter pilot in World War I. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order a record eight times. One of those awards was converted in 1930 to the Medal of Honor. He was also awarded several medals by the nation of France, the Legion of Honor and the Croix de Guerre. In 1919, Rickenbacker was discharged from the army service with the rank of captain. He went on to eventually start and own Eastern Airlines. In World War II, the U.S. president asked Rickenbacker to help with several important missions. The first one, they sent him off to England, and he went as an advisor for the Royal Air Force and the American Air Force uh, to make some groundbreaking recommendations to run things more efficiently, and uh, he was very successful in that. And then in October of that same year, he came back to the U.S., and the president at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, gave him a handwritten message. And he said, I want you to personally deliver this to General Douglas MacArthur, who was in Papua New Guinea at the time. So they gave him a crew and they gave him a a big bomber plane and they flew from Los Angeles to Hawaii. And they thought they were just going to refuel. But at the last minute, they said, no, 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 we need that plane. We're going to put you in this other one. The only problem was that new plane had a defective navigational instrument. I think we put a picture of it in there. It's called the bubble octant. And uh, this one was completely uh, not working, and it led them way, way, way off course. And so as they were flying from Hawaii to Papua New Guinea, they finally realized where they were, And they were so far off course, they were running out of fuel, and they were finally forced to ditch into the Pacific Ocean. So Rickenbacker and eight crewmen drifted in life rafts under the baking sun. Their meager food supplies ran out after three days. And by day eight, these guys were near total collapse. And it was at that point that Rickenbacker led the men in a prayer service. And they read scripture. Some of the men grumbled, but Rickenbacker reminded them that God was their only chance to make it out of that situation alive. And after he had prayed and he had thanked God for getting them that far, and then he prayed, Lord, we need food. We need water. We need rescue. And once their little church service was over, he kind of put his hat over his eyes and he laid back in the raft under that baking sun And he started to go to sleep and all of a sudden he felt something land on his head. And it was a seagull way out there in the middle of the Pacific where there shouldn't have been a seagull. And it landed on his head. And he sort of said this 
thank you, Lord, prayer. And he reached up and he got the seagull and they ate it. And then they used the rest that they couldn't eat to catch fish. And it began to sustain them over the days. Several days later, a rain squall came over the life rafts. And uh, they're like, oh, finally rain. But it was moving so fast, it didn't dump much rain before it moved on. And he said, guys, this is our second opportunity. We're going to pray again. Lord, stop that rainstorm. And he said, everyone grab a paddle. We got to catch up to this thing. And they paddled and God miraculously stopped that storm. And they were able to be under it for a long time. They collected as much water as they could. They drank and drank and drank. And then somebody had the idea, collect any piece of clothing, get it sopping wet. And then in the days to come, they would slowly wring it out and drink it. Well, as the days move forward, they ended up being in that raft for an unbelievable 24 days. One gentleman gave in to despair. And in the middle of the night when no one else was watching, he began to drink seawater and he died. But the rest of the seven crewmen and Rickenbacker hung in there. And by day 24, they were at their absolute last end. If, if God didn't rescue them, they were about to die. And Rickenbacker prayed one last time. And out of nowhere, a U.S. Navy Patrol Kingfisher float plane spotted and rescued them. And I think we put a map in there. All they had floated all the way to a little island nation called Tuvalu. If you don't know where that is, you can see Australia, past Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and then go north, little tiny Tuvalu. They had floated so far in those rafts in 24 days. And it is said in his retirement years that Eddie Rickenbacker and his wife Adelaide would go down to Florida for over half the year. And it was his Friday night practice. He would leave the house. He would go. He would buy a bucket of shrimp. He'd go to the end of the pier and he would feed the seagulls. And as he did, he thanked Lord, the Lord for sending that one seagull that saved their lives. Now, I tell you that remarkable story this morning because it illustrates a powerful lesson about gratitude. You see, Rickenbacker gave thanks before they saw the miracles of food and water and rescue. And then he also gave thanks after it was all over. And as we're looking at this concept of gratitude in our series today, we come to a passage in the Bible in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 20 in the first half of the Bible that illustrates this so beautifully and so powerfully. We're going to begin in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites and some of the Munites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already in Hazazon Tamar. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. 
Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people? Israel, and give it to them forever for the descendants of Abraham, your friend. They have lived in it, have built in a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession he gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. We entitled this first point, Trust While Disaster Approaches. And this was a disaster. Three separate armies banding together to come and crush the small kingdom of Judah. King Jehoshaphat knows it too. I love the line of his prayer. We have no power to face this vast army attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You know, in the ancient world, warfare was a pretty gruesome affair. Two armies lining up to beat the tar out of each other. They would use rows of archers, men with slings and stones, cavalry on horseback, and then foot soldiers with swords and spears. The key was in numbers. Whoever had the biggest army was going to win. Judah, at that point, has a teeny little army in comparison to the one coming at it. And Jerusalem itself was still a small city at that point. There's no way they could pull all the people of Judah inside the city walls. Basically, there was no objective way Jehoshaphat and his people can stand up to these three armies on their own. It's hopeless. Now, there's two little key things I'd love to remind us about Jehoshaphat. Number one, his heart was truly devoted to God. In the previous chapter, we actually see him traveling around to all the towns in Judah. And he's working to, to bring the people back to God. He's, he's getting them to worship. He's giving out copies of the scriptures. He's encouraging his people, don't worship those idols, those woods of God and stone. Worship the one true living God. And the second thing is that Jehoshaphat had a passion for justice. He knew that the people need to be governed well and they needed good judges in all the towns. And so he kind of cleaned the slate, got rid of the old ones, and put people of integrity in those positions. And he really got in their face and he said, you're serving, you're representing God who judges fairly and impartially. So you need to do the same. So that's kind of the background of Jehoshaphat. But now he faces the critical test of his entire kingship. This is where the rubber hits the road. What will happen? Will he cave into fear? Will he surrender the country? Will he try to buy the enemy off? Will he turn not to God, but to some other country, try to form an alliance and be rescued? But we find out pretty quickly what kind of leader Jehoshaphat is. When he first finds out about it, 
I love verse three. It says, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. Everywhere in the Bible that you see fasting, it's always linked to prayer. So when he declares a fast, he's asking the nation to pray. And there are three questions asked by Jehoshaphat in his prayer to God. He asks the question, are you not? Did you not? And will you not? Jehoshaphat is in such distress that he gets right to the bottom line with God. He said, Lord, the God of our answers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. If God isn't powerful enough to to stop these armies, then why bother praying? Jehoshaphat praises God for who he truly is. Are you not the God in heaven? Yes, of course you are, is the answer. And that's the best place to start. And then the second question, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? Give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. They have lived in it and have built a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether sword or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. Jehoshaphat reminds himself and really the whole nation that God has been faithful in the past. He fought the battle for us in the past. He gave us the land. He told us to build the temple. And our ancestors knew if we gathered here with sincere hearts, called out to him in prayer, then he would rescue us. And that's really the challenge that jumps across 2,900 years to us sitting here in Ladysmith in 2020. I think we can all agree it's much easier to be thankful to God when everything turns out right. When your marriage is great, your kids are well-behaved, they're achieving, your job's enjoyable, it's well-paying, rewarding, you're enjoying a great life. Easy to be thankful in those moments. But how about being thankful when you face a huge potential disaster right in the face? That's what Jehoshaphat did, and all the people, to their credit, followed suit. They took a huge step of faith when it didn't look good at all. So what about you this morning? Is everything in your life just floating along? Is it all good? Is it all peachy? Or do you have some worries that really weigh on your mind? I want to pass on just Jehoshaphat's challenge this morning. Be thankful now before you even see God's rescuing hand in your life. Finally, Jehoshaphat's third question. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker led those sunburnt, dehydrated, starving guys in a life raft in a worship and prayer service before he actually sent the provisions of a seagull and fish and water. King Jehoshaphat thanked and praised God for who he was and what he had done before. And the nation, before the nation ever saw God's rescuing hand from those three invading armies. And you and I this morning are called to do the same. We're called to that same kind of trust and gratitude 
before everything turns out, while we're still in the midst of troubles and problems and challenges of life. We're going to keep the story going in verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, son of Mattaniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Jerusalem and Judah. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. What a beautiful line. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground. All the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korathites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem, have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah. And they were defeated. And they were defeated. The oddest battle strategy ever. That's what this is. So that made me kind of look up in history. When have people employed really bizarre strategies in battle? Well, one of the oddest ones was in 525 BC. The Persian emperor Cambyses II, he was attacking the Egyptians. Now, Cambyses knew that cats were sacred to the Egyptians. So he had this crazy idea. He sat all of his soldiers down. He said, everyone get their shield. I want us all to paint cats on the front of our shield. So they all got out their art supplies and they painted cats on the front of their shields. And then he actually went around and he gathered up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cats. And he gave cats to each soldier on the front lines of his army. And he said, when we march out into battle, I want you to bring the cats with you. Like the oddest, weirdest thing ever. But they got there and they faced the Egyptians and the craziest thing happened. Because those cats were so sacred to the Egyptians, the Egyptians refused to attack. The archers just put down their bows like, I'm not shooting at the cats. Not doing it. It probably helped because... (laughs) Egypt had a law that if you killed a cat, it was the death penalty. So they had a little motivation there for sure. It ended up that the whole Egyptian army just turned around and ran away. And the Persians caught up with them and defeated them. That is the weirdest battle strategy ever. But if you think about what Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah are doing, it's even weirder. 
they are composing an army and they're putting the worship team in front of the army. What, what, what is that? Imagine they're coming at them and the guy goes, oh, it's time to give up. They have guitars. <laughs> oh no, they're going to sing for us. Uh-oh, we better give up. Uh-oh, I think the guy in the back row has a flute. Everyone duck. It's a really bizarre strategy. But on the other hand, it's one of the greatest acts of faith recorded in the Bible. Lord, you have told us that the battle is yours. It's not ours. Take up your position. Stand firm. See the deliverance the Lord will give you. And God followed through big time. He ends up sending all three armies into total confusion and chaos, and they destroy each other. By the time Judah's little army and that worship team showed up, there were no enemies left to fight. They had killed each other off. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. What a promise for the nation of Judah, and what a model for you and I to follow. In the midst of really hard times, start worshiping. Start thanking and praising God. Stand firm and wait for his deliverance. Don't stress yourself out. It seems so counterintuitive. But what if we could get to the place where thanksgiving and praise was our first instinct and panic was not? Not an amazing place to be. If you think about it, what do we typically stand firm on? Maybe our job, maybe our friends. For students in high school, maybe it's marks or being popular. Maybe it's your health, your fitness, your good looks. There's nothing wrong with enjoying any of those things, but they make a terrible foundation to build your life on. And if you think about that student in high school, what if, what if they do do poorly on a test? What if their friends turn against them? Then their foundation crumbles. For adults, it might be the moment when they lose their job or their family members are fighting or their health takes an unexpected turn for the worse. If that's our foundation, then when it crumbles, it's our identity, our security, it all starts to fall apart. But on the other hand, if our foundation is in the Lord, then when that battle comes and all those bad things happen, you are still okay. Your identity and your security were not in those other things. Your, your building stands secure because it's built on a strong foundation. Well, we're going to finish up the story in verse 22. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Mount Seir, they helped destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to that place that overlooks the desert, looked towards the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off the plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder, it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, 
where they praised the Lord. That's why it's called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem, went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets. Fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. What an amazing ending. Three days to carry back all that plunder from the battle. And where did the king and the people go immediately when they come back to Jerusalem? Straight to the temple to give thanks and praise to God. You know, as we gather today at our outdoor services under the rain, there are going to be some of us that are at every stage of this. For some people, you're at the beginning. You can see big challenges, obstacles, problems heading your way. My challenge to you today is to begin praising and thanking God now. For some people, you're going to find you're in the midst of it. And it's really tough. It's totally exhausting. Maybe you feel like giving up. But instead of giving into despair, we are called to worship. God give them thanks in the midst of the hard times. For some of you, the battle has been won. And the human tendency at that point is to kind of forget about God and just move on. We're called instead to head straight back to the temple, the gathering of God's people, offer our thanks and our worship. Pastor and author Eugene Peterson summarized it best when he wrote, Worship of God is the indispensable foundation for living whole and redeemed lives. Well, Thanksgiving 2020, I pray it's a great weekend for you of relationships, pumpkin pie, too many mashed potatoes, But I also hope it's a weekend of challenge, challenge to be thankful all the way through our lives. It was the right choice for Captain Rickenbacker and those eight men in those life rafts stranded for 24 days. It was the right choice for King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. And it is the right choice for you and I. Amen.